now I want to pray, and then I want to tell you a story. So let's pray. Dear Father, I pray uh, this prayer that you would illuminate your word for us tonight. And that as we explore something that is counterintuitive to the way we think, because you made it that way, God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our, our eyes, our, our minds, our hearts to be able to see this clearly. And I pray that you would, uh, your Spirit would transform us, uh, that seeds of the gospel would be planted and bear fruit in our lives tonight, Lord. I'm asking that in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right. So my story. It was a uh, cool and crisp spring morning about four years ago. I believe it was early April, and my kids and I had decided we were going to go on a bike ride. This was kind of one of our big things we did back then. We lived at the time like right around the corner from Sunnybrook Christian Church. So those of you guys who know where Sunnybrook is, it's on the corner of Perkins and Richmond Road, and our house was right on the end of the neighborhood that kind of flowed out onto Richmond Road. And, and we were literally like a five-minute walk from the church. So one of the things we would do, my, my kids were eight and six and four at the time. And one of the things that we would do is we would uh, take bikes and, and ride them down there, ride to Richmond Road. There's a little sidewalk that runs along it that goes right to the Sunnybrook parking lot. And we would ride there and just they would just kind of ride around in that parking lot for a little bit on their bikes. And then we would come back. And so that's what we did on this day. And like I said, it was, it was kind of one of those spring mornings where like spring is just beginning and so it was, it was a little chilly in the morning, enough that you wanted to wear a jacket or a hoodie of some kind, but, but also not so cold that you stayed that way, right? Once you get moving and riding around, you kind of warm up. So we're there, we're, we're riding around, we're playing, and then it's time to go home and we start going, but my kids are all saying, hey dad, we're hot, and, and they asked me if I could carry their jackets on the way home. So I said, yeah, so they all hand me their jackets, they get on their bikes, they get going. Now one of the uh, tricky things as a parent when you have small children riding bikes is that you're trying to keep your eye on all of them at the same time. Because kids, when they ride their bike, they're not aware of things like moving automobiles or parked automobiles or each other's bikes and those kinds of things. And so they're constantly like getting themselves in trouble. So you're trying to kind of watch out for them and tell them to stop or slow down or those kinds of things. Uh, but, but it gets tricky when you have three different kids who are three different ages and they all want to ride at three different speeds to try and keep up with all of them. My youngest, Hadley, was four at the time, and, and she was still in the training wheel phase there. And she moved pretty slow. In fact, so slow that sometimes she would literally just stall out, okay? If she was going up like a, like a slight hill, right? Like just kind of a slight degree there, she would just stall out in the middle of that hill and couldn't go forward anymore. Hudson and, Hadley, or Hudson and Ella, my six and eight-year-old at the time, they just considered every bike ride a race. And it didn't matter where we were going, it just mattered that I win, that I get there before my sibling. And so they wanted to go as fast as they could everywhere. This is one of those days where this, uh, where, where this played out exactly like that. I'm walking along, Ella and Hudson are out in front of me, Hadley's just a little behind, and they are taking off. They're going. Meanwhile, as I'm walking, I hear Hadley call out to me. She starts calling my name, and I look back, and sure enough, we're on that slight incline. So she stalled out. All right, so she's like, Dad, can you help? So I, got, I walk back there. I've got all the jackets in my hand. I put the jackets on the ground, and, and I start, you know, I get both hands on the bike, and I start running and trying, giving her as much momentum as I can, give her a big shove to hopefully get her up that hill. And then I turn around, and i got to walk back and get the jackets. So I scoop up the jackets. And once I scoop up the jackets, I look up, 
And my older two are like way out there in front of us, like gone so far out that I, I call their names, tell, trying to tell them to stop and slow down, and they're, they're out of earshot. They can't hear me. And they're making the turn around into our neighborhood, which means I'm about to, to lose visuals, okay? So I'm not going to be able to see them anymore. I don't know where they're going to be. And so I'm like, okay, I got to catch up with them. Um, what I haven't told you yet is I, I did not yet have a bicycle at this time. Uh, so whenever we would go on bike rides together, in order to not like expend too much energy and wear myself out, I would just grab one of my kids' scooters. Uh, whichever one was kind of closest there in the garage, I would pick it up. Well, on this particular day, I grabbed Hadley's scooter, okay? <laughs> and there are two things you need to know about Hadley's scooter. Uh, the first is that it was uh, pink and purple and white uh, with some really sweet lights that twinkle whenever you ride it, Okay. <laughs> So, needless to say, my gosh, I'm going to tell you. Needless to say, I was the coolest dad on any scooter on Richmond Road that morning as everyone was passing by and watching the uh, 34-year-old with the twinkly lights ride by, okay, on the sidewalk there. So, the second thing you need to know about Hadley's scooter, and that I did not know at the time, but I wish I would have, is that the handles on her scooter were a little loose and prone to pop off every now and then. So I get on this scooter, and I've got some ground to make up. And so I get on there, and I just start, like, I'm pumping, right? And I'm, I'm getting this thing going fast. This, this baby's humming along the sidewalk, all right? Lights are twinkling, going everywhere behind me. I'm leaving, like, a, just a stream of sparkles behind me, all right? And I'm moving as fast as I can. And then right at this moment where I get to, like, top speed on this thing, all of a sudden, this handle in my left hand just pops off, okay? It just comes to the left. Now, you got to remember... I've got jackets in this hand, which means I've lost all my hold on this scooter in this moment, okay? Um, and, and I would love to tell you that in my superior athleticism and agility, I kind of rode it out before gently tumbling into the grass. That is not what happened at all. Um, instead, like immediately when that thing went off, I just went like flying through the air, okay? Uh, jackets are going everywhere like confetti, okay? And I'm sorting. I went into this sort of like sideways Superman out across the pavement, all right? And I'm, I'm soaring across, and I hit the ground. I remember landing on my left side, laying on my arm and my hip, my knee. This is where I'm mostly feeling is across my elbow and across my hip. And it hurts so bad. And, uh, and I'm in a lot of pain, but in my mind, I'm like, oh, gosh, I got to get up. I got to catch, catch, catch my kids. So I'm gathering up all the jackets, and I gather the scooter, and I'm trying to run to catch them. But now it's kind of like this limp thing because my things hurt, right? And, uh, and I've got the scooter in my hand and the jackets. And, and then I look up as I'm trying to catch up, and Hadley has made the turn onto the neighborhood road. Only she gets too close to the curb, and one of her training wheels goes up on the curb, and flips her bike over, so she's now laid out in the middle of the street um, over there. And so now I'm in full panic mode. I can't see my older two. My, my youngest is out in the street. I'm holding my sparkly scooter and some jackets. And I'm, I look down, I'm bleeding down my arm, and I'm trying to run in and get to them. Uh, long story short, just to kind of let you know, everything turns out all right. My, my two older kids got home safely in the driveway. Um, a friend from church pulls up in their truck, they see Hadley on the ground there, and they pull over to, to, pick, uh, to pick Hadley up in the bike, and I'm sure they're going, 
where is Hadley's dad? And what's with the dude in the twinkly scooter that's running at me right now? Um, and then they realize it's me. And so he, he offers to take Hadley, puts her bike in the truck, and then gets her in the truck, and then puts my scooter in the truck, and then I get in the truck, and Hadley and I are both just sitting there bleeding and crying in the truck as he takes us home and, uh, and drops us off there, okay? Uh, it was one of those really crazy moments where so much is going on, and in those like five, six seconds, a million things are going through my head. So many things. I'm thinking about um, where my older two are and if they're okay. And I'm thinking about how bad my arm hurts right now and the rest of my body. And I'm thinking about, oh no, Hadley's out in the street and i got to get there. And I'm thinking about holding my arm out so the blood doesn't drip all over my clothes while I'm running and all of these different things. But you want to know the crazy thing is the first thing that I thought in all of that moment. Um, the, the very first thing, and it was brief, it, it wasn't there very long, but before anything else, before my kids, before the school, all this stuff, the very first thing that went through my head as I was flying through the air across the pavement was, man, I bet I look like an idiot to all these cars driving by right now. Right? That was the first thing that went through my head. And, and I looked back on that later and thought, how odd. Um, that the very first thing in my head in all the craziness of that moment is what do people think of me right now? And man, I'm so embarrassed about this right now. Um, and, and I thought at first that that was odd, but then the more and more I thought about it, the more I realized it's not that weird. Because, sadly, and I'll confess this to you, uh, it is probably one of my bigger personality flaws, one of the bigger struggles that I have that that the Lord is working on in me is that I am prone to care too much what people think. That I am prone to think about what people think of me a lot. And so that is often the first thing that goes through my mind is what are people thinking of me right now? And I, I hate that. I don't like that. But that was in me. And, and the truth is I think that that's kind of in all of us a little bit. Uh, I mean, you may not be as prone to think like that as I am, but I think all of us hate looking like an idiot. Nobody wants to feel or look like a fool in front of other people. That's just human nature. But here's the thing. That feeling right there, that desire to not look dumb in front of people, just so you know, that's a disadvantage to you when it comes to following Jesus. Because there are a lot of things about following Jesus that look foolish to other people around you. There are a lot of things about Jesus and this whole walking alongside of Him and trying to be a Christian, live the Christian life that are going to look foolish to the world around us. In fact, the very foundation of our faith, the very thing that our whole lives are built upon is something that looks very, very foolish to the rest of the world around us. And actually, that's kind of by design. So what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that's where we are today, if you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 18. Listen to what Paul says in this text here. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For the word of the cross is foolishness. Okay, quick note, anytime you're reading a text, it's always good to kind of ask this question, how does this text connect to the texts around it? 
How does this fit the flow of the author's argument? And especially you can see here the, the very first word in, chapter, in verse 18 is for, which means he's building this upon an idea that's already been said. Last week, Scott talked about this idea that the Corinthians were kind of divided against each other that there was a little bit of divisiveness popping up over different leaders. And some people were saying, well, I follow Paul. And some people were saying, I follow Apollos. And some people were saying, I follow Peter. But they weren't, when they were deciding what leader they identified with, just so you know, that didn't have anything to do with, well, I think Paul's a really strong leader and a man of character and a really godly man, or I think Peter's really godly. No, no. This was a way of enhancing their own identity. It was kind of like their tribe, something we do all Today, we identify ourselves by the teams we cheer for, or by the kind of bands we listen to, or by the political parties we associate with. And this is what's going on, is this this push towards kind of showing how important I am, because you know what group I'm with, right? And so Paul comes to them to try to stop this, and he says, basically, no, that's not what I'm about. Let me move back one verse. This is what he says in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross will not be emptied of its effect. So Paul says, listen, that's not what I'm here for. That's not what I'm about, is trying to gather up followers for myself to go on to team Paul. And he also says, that's also not what Christianity is about. And that leads us into our text here. Read verse 18 again. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Now, you're going to see this word, pay attention, you're going to see this word wisdom pop up a lot in this text. Ten different times, actually, in the text that we read tonight. And then you're going to see the word wise pop up five different times. So he's addressing this idea of wisdom 15 times in this passage. Now, it's going to look, when we're reading it, like Paul is taking shots at wisdom. Like he doesn't like wisdom, like he thinks it's a bad thing. That's not true. He's, he's not talking about biblical wisdom that gets lifted up a lot in the scriptures. It's a good thing. No, he's taking aim at a culture, a Greek culture that loved new ideas and new thoughts and new ways of thinking. And specifically at a Corinthian culture that sat in the middle of this Greek culture, a Corinthian culture that really loved people who could express those new ideas in really cool sounding ways, in really eloquent words, and it could sound very beautiful and and just kind of nice and pleasant to listen to. Paul is taking shots at this way of thinking. And in this passage, Paul is going to contrast both his message, the, the things he talks, and his method, the way he talks about it, with this idea of human wisdom, this idea of loving the new stuff and loving people who can say it in really impressive ways, people who can just blow your mind by their way to be able to turn a phrase. Paul's going to address both of these ideas as he speaks through this text. Look at verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since, in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. So, here's what Paul says. I know you guys are into wisdom, but I just want you to know, bring your best philosopher. 
bring the smartest guy in the room, bring the most eloquent man in the room, and he says to the Jewish people there, bring the greatest teacher that you've got, uh, that you've got the greatest teacher of the law, and let them bring their best ideas. He says, what I want you to know is that God is in the habit of taking the world's wisdom and turning it on its head. So when he says God makes man's wisdom foolish, that's what he means. He flips it over on its head and does something different and unexpected. Verse 21 is sort of a mouthful. It's, it's kind of hard to track with unless you read it slowly. But let me give you a paraphrase of what he means in there. He says this, that God chose to make it so that people could not just figure him and his plan out through their intelligence. God specifically enacted his plan of history, his plan for how he was going to save the world and make it right. He did it in a specific way that you couldn't figure it out by being really smart. That you weren't going to be able to use your cunningness and your cleverness as a human being to be able to know what he was doing. He was going to do something that would be unexpected to you. And God did this in a way that would not make sense according to the worldly system, in a way that will look like foolishness. God says, or Paul says, God came to save the world through foolishness, through things that look like madness to the world around them. And Paul says, that's exactly what I came to preach. So what is that thing? Verse 22. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom, But we preach Christ crucified. That's the thing. Which is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So Paul says this, the Jews, in order to believe that something really is from God, in order to believe that something really is important, what they want to see is they want to see you perform miracles. They want to see, okay, you want to to tell us you're from God? You want to tell us you're important? Prove it by miracles. And we see this in the Gospels time and time again, where many of the Jewish people will come before Jesus and say, prove to us that you're the Messiah. Perform some kind of miracle. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus does miracles, but he never does them on demand. He doesn't doesn't play games. He's not there to entertain. He's not there to be your magician. He's not there to kind of ooh and all with those things. And so he does not give in to those pleas or demands. Now the Greeks, the Greco-Roman world at the time, they were known, as we said, for their great love of learning and philosophy. And so he says the Jews, they want miracles. The Greeks, they want really cool ideas spoken in really cool ways. But, But here's what we bring. We bring Christ and Him crucified. What we come to talk about is the cross. And he says that that is a stumbling block for the Jews. Stumbling block in the Greek, literally the word is scandalon. It's where we get the word scandal from. A scandal is something you're embarrassed of if it ever gets out. And this idea that our Messiah, Paul says, is crucified, that is an embarrassment to the Jews. They would be embarrassed by that. And to the Greeks, it's madness. It's ridiculousness to them. So why would Christ crucified be a scandal and foolishness to the people of Paul's day? Well, for the Jewish people, an executed man who is a victim of the Gentiles uh, does not mean Messiah to them. The Messiah, by definition, was supposed to be victorious, was supposed to be a warrior who comes and conquers all of the Jewish people's enemies. So the very fact that the Romans crucified him and put him on a cross just shows that he was a sham. He couldn't have been the real Messiah if that's what happened to him. And for the Greco-Roman world, the idea of crucifixion 
was considered the most shameful death that was reserved for the lowliest of people in all of existence. It was something that Roman people in polite society, Cicero, this Roman philosopher says, they were not even supposed to speak of at the dinner table. It was too far below them to talk about things like that. In fact, crucifixion wasn't even legal to do to a Roman citizen. That was considered too shameful, no matter how bad you are. If you're a Roman citizen, we would not humiliate you to that degree. This was such a terrible thing to the, uh, to the Roman world, and it was seen as such a shameful thing in the middle of an honor-shame society. If you want to get any idea about how bad this is, when you go home tonight, Google this. Google Jesus Roman Graffiti. Jesus Roman Graffiti. What you'll see, what will get pulled up, is actually the first ever drawing of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And it's this piece of graffiti that was chiseled into the side of a wall of a house in Rome. And there's this man, sort of man, hanging up on a cross. But the reason I say sort of man is because he doesn't have the face of a man. Instead, he has the face of a donkey. He's a jackass hanging from a cross. And then there's a man underneath that who looks to be kneeling towards the cross. And there's this scribbled writing in there that says, translated into English, Alexemenos worships his God. The idea is to be a mockery of any idiot who would think that they should worship a crucified man. How ridiculous can you be to try and do something like that? The truth is this, if you were going to try to invent a religion in the Roman Empire in the first century, if you're going to try to make up a religion that was supposed to take the world by storm, the worst thing you could possibly do is make the center of that religion a crucified peasant from Palestine. And yet, Paul says, when we see that crucified peasant from Palestine, we see the power of God. And now Paul will use the Corinthians' own experience as an example of what he's talking about. Look at verse 26. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, and not many were powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong, and God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. And it is from him that you are in Christ who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Now, we're going to dial in on this section in the second half of our night tonight, so I don't want to spend too long here, but there's just a couple things to check. What, what Paul is trying to point out to the Corinthians here is he says, hey, look at yourselves. You should know that when you became Christians, when the gospel came to you, most of you didn't fit the world's standards for wisdom or power or beauty or riches or nobility or impressiveness. No, a lot of you were from the lower classes. A lot of you were deemed unwise and you weren't the really clever sounding philosopher on the street corner gathering a crowd around them. A lot of you were not the upper class or rich, but the gospel came to you and it began to change you. And what Paul is saying is this is how God has always worked. Human wisdom would say if something great and important is ever going to happen in this world, if God were to come and launch something extraordinary, he would need to do it through great and important people. And he would need to do it through incredible, jaw-dropping events. But the gospel 
was spreading through the Roman Empire and would eventually take over the Roman Empire through the humble and the lowly, through the slave class, through the poor, through the have-nots. So Paul says God used what was foolish to shame the wise. Now, you should know, just to clarify, when Paul says that the gospel is foolishness, he doesn't mean that it's nonsensical or illogical. There are some people who kind of think that, um, that Christianity or any sort of religious faith, but that the Christian faith is something that it's not really a matter of logic. It's not really a matter of reason or evidence. Uh, who cares about facts? What we care about is faith. Just believe. No, no. The Christian faith is actually, actually strongly rooted on historical evidence and facts. And the Bible, time and time again, holds itself up and says, examine this. Like, don't just believe it. Examine this and, and look at it and see that it's true. So Paul and the Bible has no problem with reason and logic and, and truth and seeking all those facts. What Paul's saying is not that Christianity is illogical. He's saying that it's counterintuitive. That it's not the way people would have done it. That it's something that people would never have guessed. Actually, next week he'll talk about wisdom in a good way. He'll talk about the right kind of wisdom. We'll get to hear about that then. But let's finish out our section, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. So here Paul says, not only was my message foolish, but also my method was foolish. Now again, he, Paul's not against trying to craft words in a convincing or compelling way. No, no, no. You read the book of 1 Corinthians and you can see he works to craft this whole letter in a convincing and compelling way. He's not against any of those things. He's saying that he would never, when he comes to preach, and when, he, when I came to Corinth to you, and when I taught, he said, I made it my goal that I would never lose my focus from the main thrust of the message, and that is this. Jesus, the Son of God, died on a cross to pay for your sins and to bring you back to God, and then he resurrected back to life. Paul says, I didn't come to impress you. I didn't come to make you feel good about yourselves. I didn't want to manipulate you into believing what I said because I was able to play on your emotions or because I was able to sound really clever or anything like that. And, and he also says, I did not avoid the uncomfortable parts of the message. I didn't avoid telling you that you're sinful and in need of someone to redeem you and that your only hope for this lies in a crucified criminal peasant that the rest of the world looks at with disdain. And it may look like foolishness, Paul says, but this is how God has done it. And so this is how I will do it, Paul says. Which leads us to this question, why? Why is that how God did it? Why of all the ways that he could have come and saved the world, why of all the ways could he have come and transformed and made everything right again and brought everything to newness again, of all the millions of plans that could have been out there, why did he choose this one? Why did he choose the way that looks so foolish, both to people back then and to people today? That's what we're going to talk about after the break in just a few minutes. But for now, I think we might have some treats coming around. Yes, we do. All right. Hang out for a few minutes, we'll get started again.
I want to uh, tell you one more story. Uh, this one happened not four years ago. This one happened 15 years ago. 15 years ago? Is that right? Okay, 15 years ago. When some of you guys were young, it's... I, uh, a number of you, I've shared, the, I've shared this before, that after I graduated from college, I joined a team of five others, and we went overseas to this small little country called the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. And uh, we went there basically to do two things. We went there to explore kind of the, the area and the culture and to see what possibilities there might be for like missions work to be done over there. And we also went there to see if we ourselves could get to uh, build friendships with people and get to share with people the news that we've heard about Jesus. If we could tell them a little bit about our own lives and a little bit about the things we've heard from the scriptures and how that has changed us. And so the thing is with Cyprus or Northern Cyprus is you can't go over there um, on a visa, on like a missions visa, right? You can't go in for that reason. You go over there for a different reason. So we all enrolled in this university called Eastern Mediterranean University. And we went there as a way to be able to be on the island. And so we got student visas and we lived on campus. We thought, this is cool. We'll get a chance to kind of meet students here and, and build friendships there. And so um, long before we even moved there, we prayed that God would give us people that we could meet and we could talk to uh, about the, the good news that we've received, the hope that we have in Jesus. And, uh, and so we arrive there, we enroll in these classes. I don't really know what's going on when I'm enrolling in classes. Most of what they're doing is spoken in English, but a lot is happening in Turkish, so I'm just kind of getting, I'm along for the ride. Whatever the advisor signs me up for, I just go show up to. There's this class there that I believe was called General Studies, and I had no idea what that was. I show up, and apparently it's like a class where for like 15 weeks we're doing stuff or something like that, it, but it's... Uh, five different subjects with five different professors. Each professor comes and teaches for like three weeks and then another one comes in and teaches for three weeks. And so we did something like, we did some like uh, algebra math stuff for three weeks. I think we did biology for three weeks. We might have done philosophy, just random stuff for three weeks, all right? But the very first session that we had and the very first professor that we had, we had no idea this was happening, was world religions. And so as soon as he said, we're going to be talking about religion in here, we thought, man, maybe this is me and my girlfriend at the time, whose name was Amy, and she's now my wife, Amy. We're in enrolled in the That's right. Hey, well, you can, there's one way to find a wife, is at least go become a missionary somewhere, something like that. Some, okay, so me and my wife are in this class, me and my girlfriend are in this class, and we start going, man, this could be a chance for us to get to talk with some people and build relationships. So we're praying about these things. And then we go to class, and for the first few days, he walks through the different major religions. He speaks about Islam, because this is the main religion of the Turkish people and the Turkish Cypriot people. And he talks about Buddhism, and he talks about Hinduism. And finally, he comes in and begins to talk about Christianity. And I remember sitting there in that class. I'm in the middle of this big room with lots of students. And I remember as he begins to talk about what Christianity is, that Christians believe in this man called Jesus. They believe that he was the Son of God. And their kind of faith is based on his teachings. And their scriptures are this thing called the Bible. And he says, and the main point of Christianity is to get to heaven. And the way that you get to heaven is by doing enough good deeds that people will, that you can make your way towards heaven by doing those good deeds. And as soon as he said that, um, I felt my, my heart started beating um, really hard. And I just thought to myself, I got to say something. Um, and and I, I, I've been praying, you know, that I would have a chance to talk to some people. But I did not mean God, a hundred people at the same time in a room, um, challenging my professor that I've only been here after I've only been here for like a week or two, right? 
And so I raise my hand, and again, my heart is just pounding, and I'm so nervous, and he looks at me. No one has raised their hand. No one has said anything in class for the first, like, two weeks, right? And, and he looks at me like, what are you doing with your hand up? What does that mean? And he's like, okay, what do you, what do you, what do you have to say? And I said, yeah. Um, I said, I, I'm a Christian, and we don't believe that. And he said, what? I said, yeah, we don't, we don't really believe what you just said about doing good deeds to get to heaven. And he said, well, what do you believe? And I said something along the lines of, well, we believe that, that no one is good enough to get to heaven, that our, our sin has separated us from God so much that there's no amount of good deeds that we can do to get ourselves back there. But um, we also believe that God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus into the world as human, and that after live, living a human life, Jesus died on a cross. And when he did that, he did that to pay for all our sins so that anyone who trusts in him can have all their sins removed so that they can be brought back to God again. And I remember him just looking at me. And he kind of turned his head sideways like I was crazy. And this might not be true in my mind. I feel like every head in the room just turned and looked at me. And everybody else is looking at me like I'm crazy. Because who would believe that God would come and would die? Actually, many Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet and that therefore when he was put on the cross that God did not let him die on the cross. God would never let that happen to a great prophet. And so instead, many believe that actually what happened is God took Judas and exchanged him and put him up on the cross to die instead. Because why would the Son of God ever die a shameful death like that? And, and there are a number of people who, and, and, and for most of the world, it only makes sense that you do good things to please God, to get him to like you. And so for me to say, no, actually, Jesus died to take care of all that, that just seemed crazy. And people are looking at me in that room like I'm crazy. And the truth is, in that moment, I kind of feel crazy. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that as you tried to explain to a friend what you actually believe? what you actually believe about the Bible or believe about Jesus, or, or maybe you brought a friend to church and, and they sat there and they're, you're listening to the sermon, but you're listening to it through their eyes and you're going, this sounds crazy to them. I know it sounds crazy. Or they stand up and they do communion and some guy holds up a little cup and he's like, this is the blood of Christ. And everybody drinks it and you're like, oh gosh, this is so weird sounding. Okay? <laughs> ask, Ask Scott about sitting next to a new guy who came to our church one time who literally started laughing out loud in the middle of communion because it seemed so ridiculous to him. Why did God do it that way? Why did God make his message so foolish and seem so sometimes offensive to people and so silly to people who do not believe? Well, Paul actually gives us the answer to that right in the middle of this text. I told you that we'd be back here. Look at verse 27. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong, and God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, here you go, so that no one may boast in his presence. The point is that no one will get to say about the gospel and about God and his plan. No one will get to say, I figured it out. No one is ever going to get to say, I do not get to say that the reason I am a Christian and my neighbor to the left of me is not a Christian is because I'm smarter than him. 
I don't get to say it's because my superior wisdom enabled me to see things that he just couldn't see. No, no, no. The only wisdom that saves me isn't even mine. That's what Paul says in the very next verse. Verse 30. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, Jesus is my wisdom for me because I could not figure it out. And then Paul goes on to say this, that he's also my righteousness for me because I couldn't be moral enough. And he's my sanctification because I couldn't be holy enough. And he's my redemption because I could not redeem myself. Do you see how counter this is to every other religion or spirituality that sets itself out there in the world? In every other system for how you get to God, or in every other system for how you become more spiritually fulfilled or become at peace with yourself, it's always to some degree dependent on me to be good enough for God to like me, or to be wise enough to be able to walk the path of enlightenment, or to be disciplined enough to keep all the rules that my religion gives to me. Even in those like non-religious spiritualities where all it is about finding God within yourself, it's still on me to walk that path and to find and discover and figure out peace with myself and with God. And this is why religion always has a tendency to lead us towards self-righteousness and pride because I did it. In my religion, unlike all these other ignorant or unenlightened immoral people around me, I figured it out. But Christianity is different. And the gospel is different. The gospel says that I couldn't do all those things, so Jesus did it for me. And yes, this should lead to growth and maturity maturity in me. It should make me a better person as the Holy Spirit is at work in me. But even that, as I grow and mature, I recognize that that's not for me. It's not because I'm better than my neighbor. It's not because I'm superior. It's because God's grace and goodness working to save me from myself and to make me something new. And so the gospel leaves me no room for arrogance. I don't get to be prideful, and I don't get to be self-righteous, and I don't get to be superior. What I get is to be grateful for what Jesus has done for me. What I get is to be humble before the servant king, son of God, who came and humbled himself to die in my place for my sins. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're just going to spend a little bit of time being grateful to be grateful in song. and So I want to actually ask the, the band to come up here and they're going to lead us in just a few songs, some moments for us to think about what Jesus has done for us as our wisdom and our righteousness. As they come up here and share this, I'm going to get out of their way here for just a second and share kind of one other thought with you. I've got to come this way. Ooh. So just as the message that we received is foolishness, just as the gospel that we received seems crazy, I just want you to remember this. That's also true for what we offer to people. All we've got to offer is this message. And there's a lot of people who want to try to make Christianity more palatable by saying Jesus will make your life better or Jesus will uh, help you be more fulfilled or Jesus will give you purpose. And listen, I believe that those things can be true. I believe that a lot of that happens, although you might have to change your definition of what better means. And there are a lot of people who just want to avoid talking about this altogether because it just sounds so foolish. 
But the promise that God gives us and the only thing we have to offer to people, even as we tell them that yes, it may give you purpose and yes, it may make life better, but the reason it does that is because Jesus does it for you. Because you were sinful and separated from God and He has come to redeem you out of great love through His death, His shameful death on a cross and His resurrection. And my prayer for myself is that I would not be the kind of person who is so afraid of being foolish that I'm afraid to tell people that. And my prayer for you is the same. That we wouldn't be the people who try to skirt around things that might feel a little bit embarrassing sometimes, but that we would love people enough to give them this thing that might seem really embarrassing, but Paul says is the power of the living God. So that's my prayer for us, and I want to pray for us as we begin our time of worship. Dear God, we love you, and we thank you for the foolishness of the cross. You came and made a way when we didn't have the way to do it ourselves. And I know that in my pride, I'm sometimes, I tend to shy away from talking about that or making that vocal. And uh, I apologize for that, Lord. And I pray for courage for all of us. And I pray for a joy in the good news of the gospel that will set us free to want to be able to talk about it with people we love because you loved us that much. Help us to delight in the foolishness of the cross because we know that it is your power. I ask you that in Jesus' name. Amen. All of these-